Hello, and welcome to the King of Kings podcast. Episode 7, A Regency Unraveled. Last time, the Macedonians put an end to two revolts on opposite sides of the Hellenic world. One was launched by Greek deserters in Bactria, eager to return home after over a decade of service in the Far East, while the other was led by the city-state of Athens in a bid to secure the independence of Greece from Macedonian rule. Yet despite these impressive victories, all was not well for the empire. In fact, this episode will spell the collapse of Perdiccas's regency and signal the last time for the next 40 years where Alexander's generals are not at war with each other. But in order to explain how the regency of Perdiccas came undone, we have to take our story back just a bit to his invasion of Cappadocia. This relatively obscure conflict would indirectly herald the beginning of the Wars of the Diadochi and mark the end of the ancient Greco-Persian Wars. I say this because Cappadocia had, for the better part of the past decade, served as the last bastion of Persian resistance to Alexander the Great. And as we covered in previous episodes, the former Achaemenid satrap Ariarathes had stubbornly clung on to the province against all odds, defeating the commanders Alexander had previously dispatched in order to bring the region under Macedonian control. But by the time of Alexander's death, the rogue Persian's defiance had reached its limit. Having secured the power of the regency for himself, and with two of the most immediate threats to the Macedonian Empire's stability now dealt with, Perdiccas planned to put an end to Ariarathes and his independent kingdom once and for all, and to install Eumenes as satrap of Cappadocia, just as the Greek secretary had been promised at the partition of Babylon. Yet Antigonus just flat-out ignored Perdiccas's directions when he was ordered to join forces with Eumenes, while Leonidas, meanwhile, chose to march his army in the opposite direction, into Europe, where he sought to aid Antipater during the Lamian War, and to marry Alexander the Great's sister, Cleopatra, as part of his own plan to seize the Macedonian throne. The refusal of these two satraps to take orders from the royal government in Babylon was an ominous sign for Perdiccas, made all the worse when Eumenes returned from Asia Minor in the spring of 322 BC, around the same time that the Athenians were laying siege to Antipater in the west, and Python was marching to subdue the Greco-Bactrian revolt in the east. Eumenes brought with him news that Leonidas hadn't just deserted his post, but he had lined up a marriage with Cleopatra and was plotting to claim the Argead throne and challenge Perdiccas for control of the empire. In many ways, the report came as a shock. Leonidas and Perdiccas had been friends, and the two had previously been brothers-in-arms as members of Alexander's bodyguard, the Somatophilix. But despite their history, the pair had fallen out with one another over the past year. Either intentionally or by accident, Perdiccas had slighted Leonidas at the partition of Babylon, denying him a seat on the Regency Council after one had originally been promised to him. Instead, Perdiccas had granted Leonidas the satrapy of Hellespontine Phrygia, a decent enough prize for a run-of-the-mill general, but a poor reward 
for a member of Alexander's inner circle. And now, hardly six months later, Leonidas was angling to get his revenge on his former friend. But at this point, however, the feeling was quite mutual. Likely enraged at the betrayal that he had just suffered at the hands of his old comrade, Perdiccas took matters into his own hands. With the entire royal family and army in tow, the regent of the empire marched north from Babylon, aiming to put an end to one rebellion and to nip another in the bud before it could begin. But as we know, neither Perdiccas nor Leonidas would ever get the chance to settle the score between them. Shortly after arriving on the doorstep of Cappadocia with his army, Perdiccas was informed that Leonidas had been killed almost immediately after setting foot in Europe, falling victim to the Athenians and their Thessalian allies during the Lamian War. For Perdiccas, it was a fitting end to a would-be usurper, and with Leonidas's body now being prepared for burial rather than battle, the regent of the empire could turn his attention to Ariarathes at last. The former Persian satrap was now 82, and had lived through the reigns of no less than four Achaemenid kings, five if you count himself. Ariarathes claimed descent from Cyrus the Great, the founder of the Persian Empire, and his family had served as satraps of Cappadocia for generations. In 350 BC, he inherited the satrapy after the death of his father, Ariamnes, and by all accounts, Ariarathes was quite successful as a governor, to the point that he was able to send military reinforcements to Egypt when the Achaemenids reconquered the kingdom in 343 BC. His loyalty to the House of Cyrus would continue well into the twilight years of the Persian Empire, as even after the Battle of Gagamela, Ariarathes continued to lead a Persian resistance campaign in the mountains of central Anatolia. When we did our tour of the western half of the empire back in episode 3, I mentioned that a Macedonian by the name of Abistomenes had been charged with securing Cappadocia and defeating the Persians. But unfortunately for Abistomenes, he ultimately failed in this task and disappeared from the historical record altogether after the Battle of Isis in 333 BC. But Perdiccas was no Abistomenes. With his arrival in Cappadocia, came the core of the Macedonian royal army, and with no further distractions to tie him down anywhere else, the region of the empire was free to focus all of his efforts on this last Persian holdout, led by a man who had seemingly never gotten the memo that the Achaemenids were long gone, and that his time was long past. In the summer of 322, around the same time that Craterus was crossing over into Europe, the invasion of Cappadocia began. As Macedonian troops marched into the satrapy, Perdiccas was joined by Eumenes at his side. By now, the secretary had more than proved his faithfulness, and he had recently been elevated as a member of the regent's inner circle, joining the ranks of powerful men like Seleucus, Perdiccas's chief lieutenant, who had been appointed commander of the companion cavalry after the latter became regent of the empire. And speaking of Seleucus, this podcast has introduced a large cast of colorful characters over the past half-dozen episodes, and it might be hard to keep track of everyone. Having struggled with this myself at times, 
I'd like to reassure those listeners who are worried about remembering yet another historical figure and are wondering whether or not this Seleucus guy will play an important role in our story. And to that, I promise you, he will, in more ways than one. But don't worry, Seleucus isn't on the test today. We'll circle back around to cover his background and rise to prominence down the line. For now, our focus is on Eumenes, who just joined this cavalry commander as a member of the Macedonian Regency Council. It was an honor a Greek bookkeeper could hardly dream of, but a loyal satrap of the empire could. Only, Eumenes wasn't a satrap, at least not yet, and Ariarathes intended to keep it that way. Having ruled the region for nearly 30 years, the Persian king had grown quite wealthy, and those funds would now be put to good use. At the onset of the Cappadocian War, Ariarathes managed to muster a truly massive army, numbering 30,000 infantry and 15,000 cavalry. Comprised largely of native Cappadocian and hired Greek mercenaries, this was a force even larger than the one Athens in the Greek city-states could muster to face Antipater during the Lamian War, and it was nearly twice the size of the army that deserted in Bactria. As much as Perdiccas may have wished to simply bypass the Cappadocians and begin sieging their cities right away, Ariarathes had fielded a force simply too large to be ignored. For the first time since Alexander's campaigns in India, the Royal Macedonian Army, the same army that had been with Alexander when he died in Babylon, would have to fight an enemy in pitched battle. But sadly, our knowledge of the Cappadocian campaign is quite limited. We only know that Perdiccas defeated Ariarathes in two separate battles, and that during these engagements, both sides likely deployed comparable numbers, with the Cappadocians holding an advantage in cavalry and the Macedonians enjoying superiority of numbers in infantry. This is further reinforced by the historical record, as the Cappadocians would later provide several thousand horsemen to Eumenes when the First War of the Diadochi began. And Cappadocia itself was famed for producing large numbers of well-trained heavy cavalry. Yet despite his advantage in mounted troops, Ariarathes had no counter to war elephants, which Perdiccas would have almost certainly brought with him from Babylon. And if these great beasts of ancient warfare did indeed see combat in Cappadocia, it would have been their first taste of bloodshed since trampling Meliagor's men a year earlier. But while we don't know how the invasion began, we do know how it ended. Cappadocia eventually fell to the battle-hardened Macedonians, and the last independent Persian kingdom was conquered by Perdiccas, who swiftly installed Eumenes as the region's satrap, fulfilling his promise that had been made at Babylon a year earlier. But what about Ariarathes? Accounts differ as to how exactly he met his fate. According to Diodorus, Perdiccas slew 4,000 Persians in battle and captured another 5,000, among them Ariarathes himself. The king of Cappadocia was subsequently tortured and crucified, or possibly burned at the stake, along with his entire family. However, Diodorus contradicts his own claim later on in his library of history, 
stating that Ariarathes fell in battle and that his adopted nephew, Ariarathes II, escaped with a band of followers into Armenia, which remained unconquered by the Macedonians. The solution to these contradictory statements can be found in later historical records. For one thing, Plutarch helps to confirm the theory that Ariarathes was indeed captured, and most scholars today accept that the king was executed by Perdiccas rather than being killed in battle. Yet, we know that not every member of Ariarathes' family was executed by the Macedonians, as numismatic evidence confirms the existence and survival of Ariarathes II, who indeed managed to escape the clutches of Perdiccas and flee to Armenia. This wouldn't be the last that we hear of the exiled Persian either. In 20 years, he would take advantage of the chaos of the wars of the Diadochi to invade the kingdom his uncle had established. There, Ariarathes II would succeed in expelling its Macedonian garrison and restoring the kingdom of Cappadocia, and his dynasty would subsequently rule Cappadocia for another 200 years until the Romans finally deposed the last of them in 96 BC. But in accepting the historical consensus that Ariarathes I was executed, some interesting historical implications appear. For one thing, the two accounts of how the old Cappadocian king perished, by either crucifixion or burning at the stake, aren't traditional Macedonian means of execution, but they were commonly employed for acts of treason against the Persian king of kings. By executing Ariarathes like a defeated rebel rather than a conquered foreign king, we find that Perdiccas was again seeking to establish his legitimacy as the rightful ruler of the empire, a Persian execution for a rebel Persian lord against the lawful Persian throne, which just so happened to lay in Macedonian hands. Perdiccas hoped that the invasion of Cappadocia and the execution of Ariarathes would serve as a propaganda coup for his regency. And in some ways it would, just for all the wrong reasons. Judging by his earlier actions, Perdiccas had already well established that his regency would be defined by cruelty and ruthlessness. Just look back at his handling of Meleager and his supporters. Perdiccas first betrayed them during a sacred reconciliation ceremony, and then had them trampled to death with the army's own war elephants, before finally having Meleager himself dragged out of a temple and then put to death as well. This latest act of sheer brutality, combined with his treatment of the Greek rebels in Bactria, where he ordered that no quarter would be given even after they had thrown down their arms and surrendered, was beginning to draw the attention of the other satraps across the empire. And yet, Perdiccas had won these clashes all the same. As merciless as his methods were, no one could deny their effectiveness. One by one, his enemies lay dead, while his own power and the stability of the realm grew with each new victory. And having put down one rebel lord in Asia Minor, the region of the empire could now bring another to heel. With the royal army and court, the twin keys of the kingdom at his beck and call, the region of the Macedonian Empire would spend the rest of the summer of 321 BC contemplating how to deal with the treasonous vassals who disobeyed his commands 
to participate in the invasion of Cappadocia. Only, one of them wouldn't need any more attention. Having gotten himself killed in the Lamian War, Leonatus was now beyond the reach of the law. But Antigonus was not. The old general was still ruling the satrapy of Greater Phrygia, and had begun acting like an independent monarch rather than an appointed governor. His refusal to join Perdiccas and Eumenes in the Cappadocian War was a passive yet significant act of rebellion that could not continue to go unanswered for long. Antigonus had been the first man, not present in Babylon when Alexander died, to be given any orders from the new royal government, and he had likewise become the first to defy it. Everyone knew exactly what sort of message was being broadcast to the rest of the realm so long as Antigonus continued to rule Greater Phrygia with impunity. If Perdiccas wished to head off a larger and far less passive rebellion down the road, he would need to root out this insolence quickly, before the seeds of civil war began to bloom. A lesson needed to be made of the satraps who flouted royal authority. And if Leonatus was not available for that purpose, then Antigonus would have to make do. And yet, Antigonus wasn't the only one working to seemingly undermine Perdiccas's rule. To the south, news had begun to trickle in from Egypt, a land whose governor had increasingly been a thorn in Perdiccas's side. And that man was none other than Ptolemy, a former general and bodyguard to Alexander, who had nearly toppled Perdiccas's plans to crown Alexander's unborn child before reluctantly joining forces with him in order to head off Meliagor's attempts to proclaim Philip Aridaeus as the sole king. But as we'll soon see, Ptolemy's decision to eventually throw his lot in with Perdiccas during the showdown in Babylon was simply an alliance of convenience, and one which the new satrap of Egypt would discard before long. But before Ptolemy could truly dissolve all bonds of cooperation with Perdiccas, there was one time-honored political tradition he needed to complete first, establishing a secure home base. Since the division of the Western Satrapies back in Episode 3, we've heard very little of him, but rest assured, he had been very busy over the past year. As Athens and Bactria went into open revolt in the summer of 323 BC, Ptolemy began to consolidate his role in Egypt. And despite having ostensibly been appointed to serve as satrap of Egypt at the partition of Babylon, by the summer of 322, Ptolemy had become a truly independent ruler. Sure, he continued to issue royal decrees and erect monuments in the name of Philip Aridaeus and Alexander IV, but the true power in Egypt lay in his hands and his hands alone. Of course, it was never supposed to be that way, though. Arian and Justin both write that Perdiccas only reluctantly agreed to let Ptolemy take up the satrapy of Egypt on the condition that the country's previous satrap, Cleomenes, be retained as Ptolemy's second-in-command. But Perdiccas would soon learn just how big of a mistake that decision was. Cleomenes had been in control of Egypt since 331 B.C., when Alexander appointed him to oversee the country's revenue collection. And oversee he did. Noted far and wide for his grasping nature and ability to extract money from the Egyptians even under the flimsiest of pretenses, 
Cleomenes would go down in history for establishing the largest kleptocracy in the ancient world. The book Economics, attributed to Aristotle, but most likely written by a student of his, recounts how Cleomenes milked Egypt dry, with acts of blackmail, grain profiteering, extortion, and even wholesale robbery taking place in the eight years between his appointment and Alexander's death. At one point, when much of the eastern Mediterranean was faced with a food shortage, Cleomenes banned the export of grain until the situation proved to be so dire that he could drastically raise its export customs in order to reap a hefty profit. But exploiting the sufferings brought about by famine wasn't all. Cleomenes' racketeering of Egypt's largest export also included buying up large quantities of grain at the regular price of 10 drachmas and then selling it at a markup of more than 300%. And it wasn't just the grain that he profited off of. A crafty expert of financial matters, Cleomenes knew that Egypt's real wealth lay in its vast complex of temples and shrines, which he sought to exploit to the fullest. After one of his slaves was killed by a crocodile along the Nile River, Cleomenes decreed that the reptiles be destroyed, which naturally horrified the priesthood of Egypt, who viewed crocodiles as sacred to their religion. They handed over gold from temples all across the Nile River Valley in order to have the order rescinded. But after rescinding the order, Cleomenes then decreed that the temples themselves were too expensive to maintain with state funds, and ordered them to be destroyed instead of the crocodiles. Once again, the Egyptian priests looted their own shrines and emptied their own pockets, going into financial ruin to preserve their holy sites from physical ruin. Eventually, however, these excesses caught the attention of Alexander, who leveraged them to his own benefit. In a letter the king sent to Cleomenes shortly after the death of his friend Hephaestion, Alexander promised to turn a blind eye to his Egyptian administrator's wrongdoings if he worked to establish a cult to his dearly departed friend. Arian recounts that Alexander wrote, If I find that these temples are set in good order in Egypt and these shrines of Hephaestion, whatever wrong you have done, I pardon it. And whatever nature your fault may be in the future, you shall receive no harm at my hands. Presented with this thinly veiled threat from the world's most powerful man, Cleomenes promptly began establishing these temples, and he certainly had more than enough funds to pay for them. After nearly a decade of penny pinching in virtually every way possible, the treasury of Egypt was overflowing with revenues. And Cleomenes himself had amassed a staggering personal wealth of over 8,000 talents, a figure almost no one of the era could even begin to comprehend. While direct conversions to modern currencies are next to impossible, a talent is made up of 6,000 drachmas. And in Alexander's time, a soldier in the Macedonian army could expect to be paid one drachma for one day's worth of service. And if we do some simple math, we find that a single talent was worth a tremendous sum of money for an average soldier. And 8,000 talents? Well, that would make you among the richest people in the entire world. The equivalent of a multi-billionaire 
in the modern age. But that fortune would not be Cleomenes's for long. Almost immediately after setting foot in Egypt, Ptolemy proceeded to rid himself of his second-in-command. Suspecting, correctly, that Cleomenes' loyalties lay with Perdiccas rather than himself, the satrap arrested him on charges of embezzlement and extortion and had him executed. The historian Robin Waterfield writes that Ptolemy presented this killing to his new subjects as the removal of a harsh and hated administrator. But he aptly points out that since Ptolemy kept all of the money Cleomenes had stolen, this was little more than an act of propaganda, a key component of the art of ruling in the ancient world, which Ptolemy would eventually come to master. But while the execution of Cleomenes was a cause for celebration among the Egyptians, it was nothing but a cause of anxiety for Perdiccas. Ptolemy's act of killing the man who he had been instructed to take as his second-in-command was, in essence, a declaration of independence from the Macedonian Empire. And Egypt was perhaps the worst possible place in the empire for such a revolt to be fermenting. Densely populated, unbelievably wealthy, as attested by Cleomenes' actions, and possessing borders which made her virtually immune to outside attack, Egypt was a self-contained state within a state. Aware of the demographic, economic, and geographic strengths that he now possessed, Ptolemy was sending a clear message to the royal government in Babylon that he intended to be ruled by no man. And history shows that when Egypt successfully throws off the yoke of foreign rule, it is extremely hard to re-implement. Indeed, the Achaemenids had faced a similar problem near the end of their own empire. After their victory over the 26th dynasty at the Battle of Pelusium in 525 BC, the Persians ruled as pharaohs of Egypt for over 120 years, until an Egyptian rebel named Amartaeus expelled the Persians and restored native Egyptian rule over the kingdom. For the next 61 years, the Achaemenids tried in vain to reconquer Egypt, until they finally succeeded in 343 BC under Artaxerxes III, who promptly decimated the country with the goal of preventing it from ever successfully rebelling again. But if it had taken the Persians decades to retake Egypt, who was to say it wouldn't take just as long for the Macedonians to do the same if Ptolemy revolted? And that's assuming the Macedonians even could reconquer the country. Unlike the Persians, they had yet to enjoy the benefits of ruling it for over a century. The simple fact was, the geography of Egypt made it extremely difficult to conquer. On nearly all sides, it enjoyed excellent defensive terrain. In the west and east, the country was protected by the Sahara Desert. And the Nile itself served as a powerful natural barrier to any army attempting to attack from across the Sinai Peninsula. While to the north, a seaborne invasion would be nearly impossible to pull off thanks to the Nile Delta, and the cataracts of the Nile made attacking from the south difficult as well. In truth, Ptolemy had effectively cut off a chunk of Alexander's empire for himself. And after spending the past year solidifying his control over it, he was now beginning to test the limits of what he could get away with before incurring the anger of Babylon. So far, it appeared there weren't any limits at all. Here's where things come full circle. 
Remember Harpalus, Alexander's corrupt finance minister who embezzled thousands of talents from the royal treasury and then fled to Athens where he tried to spark a rebellion against the Macedonian Empire? Well, we know that Hyperides and Demosthenes used some of that money to later fund the Lamian War against Antipater. But Harpalus didn't stick around Greece for long. Disoriented and disillusioned with his failure, he aimlessly sailed off to the island of Crete with his remaining stolen silver, and a fleet, and an army of 6,000 mercenaries under his command. Yet Harpalus, a womanizing cripple with a knack for spending other people's money and little else, lacked the sort of strategic vision needed to keep his army unified for long. As I mentioned in episode 5, he was murdered shortly after arriving on Crete. Harpalus's killer, a Spartan mercenary named Theberon, seized control of his former employer's fortune, took command of the army, and began plotting his next moves. In Athens, Harpalus had lost sight of any sort of concrete goal after his original plans of waging war with Macedon fell through. But Theberon knew exactly what 6,000 Greek mercenaries could accomplish. With a new fleet and army at his disposal, the Spartans set sail for Cyrenaica, in modern-day northeast Libya. The Greeks knew the region as the Pentapolis, as it was comprised of five cities. The most important of these was Cyrene, with its port of Apollonia. Theberon had contacts in the city, and with their help, Cyrene would serve as the springboard for carving out an independent kingdom in North Africa much like how Ptolemy had in neighboring Egypt. At first, everything went according to plan. Theberon's fleet blockaded the harbor at Apollonia, while his friends inside Cyrene managed to seize political control, where it was agreed that the city would pay him tribute and supply soldiers to bolster his mercenary army. But events went south from there. One of Theberon's officers betrayed him. The mercenary army divided in two, and half defected over to the Cyrenaeans. Now lacking the manpower to enforce his will, Theberon's forces were expelled from the city, and he set up a new base of operations in a neighboring city of the Pentapolis. From there, the Spartan used his naval supremacy to continue blockading Apollonia, intercepting merchant goods coming in and out of the city to hire new mercenaries from the Peloponnese back home in Greece. Yet as effective as this strategy was, it began to attract the attention of Carthage in the West. The great merchant republic relied heavily on maritime trade, which was now being threatened by what the Carthaginians viewed as a band of pirates operating in the eastern Mediterranean. Before long, Carthage was called into the conflict by their trading partners in the Pentapolis, and began sending military aid to Cyrene. With the entry of a major regional power, it seemed that an all-out war was brewing in the eastern Mediterranean, right on Egypt's doorstep. From his capital at Memphis along the Nile River, Ptolemy was bombarded by a stream of dispatches, relaying the bizarre series of events unfolding in the West. For those keeping score back at home, the silver that Theberon was using to fund his conquest of Cyrenaica had changed hands three times now. The Persians had struck it, Alexander had seized it, 
Harpalus had stolen it, and now Theoberon was spending it to hire scores of mercenaries from across the Hellenic world. They flocked to the Spartans' banners by the thousands, most for money and a few simply for adventure. For these men, many of whom had been left without a job thanks to Alexander's death and the scrapping of his plans to invade Arabia and the Western Mediterranean, excitement was in the air once again. But not in Memphis. Theberon's stolen money and the constant influx of soldiers it brought to the shores of North Africa had set off a powder keg of monumental proportions, and if left unchecked, the fires of war could spill over into the satrapy of Egypt itself. But Ptolemy wouldn't have to stand idle for long. After some of Cyrene's aristocrats appealed to him for his support in defeating Theberon, the satrap of Egypt sprung to action. Theberon had cash to spare, but nothing could compare to the wealth Ptolemy had at his disposal. Putting Cleomenes' fortune to work, he beat Theberon at his own game, outspending the Spartan warlord in the bidding war for new mercenaries, and raising the finest army money could buy. Ptolemy then dispatched a general of his named Aphelius with the goal of restoring order and stabilizing the Macedonian Empire's western borders. The subsequent campaign would prove to be as lopsided as it was quick. Theberon's forces proved to be no match for the Macedonians, and the Spartan outlaw was swiftly defeated, captured, and handed over to the Pentapolis for summary execution. Having now liberated the city-states to his west, Ptolemy would use the opportunity to bring the whole of Cyrenaica under his control, naming Aphelius military governor of Cyrene and incorporating the Pentapolis as client states of Egypt. This action would further confirm to Perdiccas that Ptolemy was nothing but trouble. For starters, Ptolemy had just violated Perdiccas's orders to consolidate the empire rather than engage in wars of expansion. But even more alarming, however, was the fact that Ptolemy didn't even ask the royal government for permission before launching the campaign. In fact, he hadn't even bothered to notify Perdiccas that he would be invading Libya. He just went ahead and did it. Of course, satraps were expected to protect their borders, and Ptolemy used this, along with the invitation of Cyrene's aristocrats to restore order in the region, as a justification for his actions. But it was beginning to become clear that Ptolemy was starting to act like Perdiccas's equal, rather than his subordinate. The region of the empire would have to act soon if he wished to prevent Egypt from slipping away for good. Yet before he could bring Ptolemy back in line in the south, or haul Antigonus to his court in the north, there were pressing matters in Anatolia and Armenia that needed to be dealt with first. Fresh off his victory against Ariarathes earlier that summer, Perdiccas relocated his roving court to Cilicia in the summer of 322 BC, where he intended to winter his army until the spring. Moving to Cilicia was a wise move, as the silver shields were stationed in the satrapy. These elite Macedonian troops, led by their captain Antigonese, were widely believed to be the greatest soldiers in the entire world. Even though many of these soldiers were in their 50s and 60s, this reputation was well-deserved, as the coming events would more than prove. 
Yet despite their unparalleled experience and unmatched skill on the battlefield, Craterus had foolishly left these men in Asia when he crossed over into Europe, allowing Perdiccas to incorporate them into his own army. But the Silver Shields wouldn't be the only addition to the regent's party. While in Cilicia during the winter, Perdiccas shook up the local administrative structure, replacing the regent's satrap with another Macedonian officer named Philoxenus, while bringing Philotas, the previous satrap, into the regency's inner circle, possibly as a replacement to Eumenes, who had just been given his own first major military assignment. As we know, the remnants of Ariarathes' Persian army, including his nephew Ariarathes II, had fled to Armenia after their defeat by the Macedonians, and Neoptolemus, the general Perdiccas had previously dispatched to pacify the region, had instead thrown it to chaos. Hoping to deal with the quagmire in Armenia before it required the full attention of the royal army, Perdiccas reached out to Eumenes, who had been left behind in neighboring Cappadocia to organize his new province to his liking. The secretary-turned-satrap had demonstrated in the campaign against Ariarathes that he was more than just a competent bookkeeper, he was a competent commander as well. And so, trusting his Greek subordinate to use his diplomatic and military skills to sort out the mess Neoptolemus had created, Perdiccas tasked Eumenes with restoring peace to Armenia. In this assignment, Eumenes once again showed his worth as a superb organizer and logistics expert. Using the promise of tax cuts for the local nobility, combined with an offer of free horses for the Cappadocian warrior class, the newly appointed satrap managed to raise a considerable force of several thousand horsemen from the very lands that he had just helped to conquer just months before. But that wasn't all. Eumenes then proceeded to drill this newly minted foreign army in the Macedonian style of fighting. And satisfied with his work, the satrap of Cappadocia invaded Armenia and brought the anarchy Neoptolemus had instigated to a quick end. In his first independent campaign, Eumenes had proven to Perdiccas that he was a competent field commander in addition to being a faithful ally. Yet as he climbed up the ladder of power, Eumenes was making enemies of his own, as he began to surpass even Macedonian generals in influence. Among them was Neoptolemus, who wouldn't forget that a Greek secretary had outshined him in Armenia. But while Eumenes was working to restore order in Armenia, Perdiccas began doing the same in Pisidia, the last piece of unruly land in Asia Minor. Located in the mountains of southeastern Anatolia, between the satrapies of Lycia, Caria, and Phrygia, Pisidia was a wild and rugged landscape, with even wilder people. For over a thousand years, the Pisidians had rejected foreign rulers. Hittites, Lydians, and even the Persians had failed to gain their submission. These fierce people continued to stubbornly cling to their independence. It was the Pisidians that had killed the first husband of Antipater's daughter, Phila, after he had been appointed satrap of the region by the late king. And for the crime of resisting Macedonian rule, Perdiccas sought to lay waste to the two major towns which the Pisidians called home, Loranda and Isora. In a lightning campaign, 
the Macedonians sacked the former and razed it to the ground, while Perdiccas had all of the men executed and all of the women and children sold into slavery. But once news of Loranda's destruction had spread, the inhabitants of Isora chose to deny the Macedonians the pleasure of imposing a similar fate on them as well. After withstanding Perdiccas's onslaught for two days, the Isaurians ended things on their own terms, setting fire to their town and throwing all of their worldly possessions into the bonfire. When the Macedonians began to breach the town's walls, the defenders then flung themselves into the inferno. Isora was quickly engulfed by flames. Astonished at what was taking place, Perdiccas and his officers pulled back their forces to allow the fires to die out. The next day, the Macedonians entered the ruins of Isora, working their way through charred homes and cooked bones in search of pools of melted gold and silver. It was a gruesome victory, but a victory nonetheless. Slowly but surely, Perdiccas was methodically clearing the way from Babylon to Europe, laying the groundwork for what he hoped to be the biggest move of his regency yet, the burial of Alexander the Great. For nearly two years, preparations had been made to transport the king's body back to its intended burial site in Macedon. At last, those preparations were complete. Though the king's great funeral train and the momentous journey his body would take after departing Babylon in the spring of 321 BC will have to be covered in the next episode. For now, with Alexander's body having just departed Babylon, and with Anatolia and Armenia now pacified, Perdiccas was ready to tie up another loose end, the wedding knot with his new wife. As we've discussed before, he had married the daughter of the Persian satrap Atropodes at the Susa weddings in 324 BC. But those weddings had simply been one part of a larger process of fusing the Greek and Persian worlds together, a process that was now abandoned with Alexander's death. As a result, Perdiccas annulled the marriage Alexander had arranged for him, like nearly everyone else in the Macedonian officer corps, with the exception of his lieutenant Seleucus. In the previous two episodes, I mentioned that Perdiccas had opted to marry Nicaea, daughter of Antipater. The details of this political alliance were hashed out well in advance of the Cappadocian campaign, and now that both Greece and Anatolia had been pacified, the match could finally proceed without interruption. But fate would have different plans. Next time, Perdiccas will be presented with an offer he cannot refuse. Alexander's body will be seized on its route to Macedon, and the wars of the Diadochi will finally begin. <laughs>